Hi, everyone. Welcome to Key Change, a COC podcast, where we explore everything about opera from a fresh perspective. We're your hosts, Robin Grant Moran and Julie McIsaac. Today, we'll be talking about a storyline that most people probably associate with William Shakespeare, Macbeth. From a play in the 17th century to countless adaptations for novels, film, TV, and of course, opera, it seems we can't get enough of this tantalizing tragedy about the perils of ruthless ambition. Giuseppe Verdi was definitely what you might call a Shakespeare superfan. In addition to composing Macbeth, Othello, Falstaff, he also thought about potential settings for Hamlet and King Lear. And what do you get when one of the world's greatest composers takes on material from one of history's greatest playwrights? Absolute magic. Macbeth combines Shakespeare's powerful drama with a score from Verdi that amps up the tension and really drives the action. When the opera arrives in Toronto this season, it will be in the form of a gritty new production recently debuted in Chicago. It's directed by Sir David McVicker and features Quinn Kelsey and Sandra Radvanovsky as Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. It also marks the return of conducting phenom Speranza Scapucci. Speranza has been called one of classical music's brightest stars. She trained as a pianist at the Juilliard School in New York and the Santa Cecilia Conservatory in Rome. She later moved into opera coaching before finally picking up a baton and growing her passion into an incredible talent for working with singers and instrumentalists alike. She's now considered one of the most interesting conductors of her generation, with regular appearances at some of the world's most prestigious opera houses. Speranza made her Toronto debut just before the start of the pandemic with the COC's The Barber of Seville. For those lucky enough to have caught a performance, it wasn't unusual for the audience to break out into cheers and enthusiastic applause after the overture alone. Speranza has a lot to say about why Verdi plus Shakespeare is a winning combination. She also shared why you'll probably never catch her at a bowling alley. She began by walking us through her thoughts on how Verdi's score transforms Shakespeare's text. Well, first we need to keep in mind that, of course, the plays are the basis of these operas, Falstaff, Macbeth, Otello, but that there's a libretto. Um, and the libretto basically is a transformation of the text into Italian poetry and specifically for the opera. What Verdi does is that Verdi is a, is a genius, just like Shakespeare. And so he takes the text, um, the Italian text, of course, and then depicts the situations or the characters through the music like any great composer, but I find that Verdi was a real master at it in in terms of um, how to combine the text with, for example, what the orchestra is doing in the pit. Are there any moments in particular that stand out to you in the opera Macbeth where you feel that what is happening musically is really giving us um, something that really elevates the drama. So as taking what Shakespeare created through text or what the librettist created through text and really emotionally is, is doing some great um, work for us. Well, the whole opera is because basically he, 
first of all, it's very important to, to remember also that in Macbeth in particular, Verdi was trying to experiment with um, trying to create atmosphere through music. The whole music, for example, the witches, all the scenes with the witches, is what he thinks is a fantastic uh, and by fantastic, I mean imaginary world of crafts and witches. So there's, for example, a, a beautiful scene when when Macbeth uh, faints and then the witches come and sing, and it's like a fairy music. And at that point, it's so atmospheric, the music, that you really feel like you, today, that like you could be in a movie where like, uh, you, you just see the fairies coming in. Another thing is that he was experimenting a lot with the voice. And so, for example, the two characters of Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are not intended to be sung by necessarily by beautiful voices, but by voices that can become really like actors. So that he writes many times in the score, cupo, which means dark, or parlato, which means spoken, or, uh, you know, different things where... And it's interesting because he wrote Macbeth quite early in his in his life, in the first phase of his life. And then he revisited the score and rewrote many, many parts of it in, at a later time. And you can see in the scenes that he rewrote that he's already developed into what will be then the later Verdi of, of uh, the later, later Simon Bucanegra, Otello and Falstaff and Aida. Are there other things that you hear in terms of Verdi's musical progression when you think about Macbeth, where he was coming from and then where he was headed later in his career? You mentioned the atmosphere and the characterization, but are there other things that come to mind? Well, for example, in the first part of his life, he was still very much into the bel canto form of writing. So there's a clear, in some pieces, especially in the early version, you have the aria and then a cabaletta and then the music stops so it's like sort of uh, closed numbers Whereas later on in Aida and, and Falstaff and Otello, there's no such thing as an aria. It's just a stream stream of music because a lot had, had happened in those years and Wagner had happened. And in, in some parts of Macbeth, we also have that where it's just continuous. Are there moments that you look forward to conducting, like thinking about the score of Macbeth and thinking about having those singers on stage in front of you. Are there particular moments that you're really excited to explore musically with them? I would say that the whole score, of course, but um, 
there's there's lots of it really interesting music like the the duets between the two of them lady macbeth and macbeth the stream like the the there's a sort of scene which is a soliloquy of macbeth when he talks about killing you know and the, the, the knife And then, of course, the, the big finales, you know, in Verdi, when you have a big concertato finale um, at the end of the big party of Act Two, Act Two, that's a really great scene with all the chorus. There's the important chorus of Act Four, which is one of our um, three or four important choruses by Verdi as Italians that we feel very patriotic and so very close to musically. What is it about Verdi that gets you as Italians feeling so patriotic? Well, Verdi, Verdi's a, Verdi's the composer of all the process that brought us to the United Nations. Uh, in Italy. So, you know, from starting from Vapensiero in Nabucco and then and then the, the core of Macbeth, there are some moments in Verdi that are clearly uh, linked to the story itself. For example, in that case, it's the oppressed people by by Macbeth who has killed all all the people, you know. Um, but obviously Verdi was writing it with in mind the people that were oppressing the Italians. So in that in that particular historical period, it was the the Austrian Empire. So these these choruses are very powerful because they are symbolic of fighting to be an independent nation. And so and then they become sort of universal to all mankind mankind. They become they become also the voices for, let's say, the Ukrainian people right now or whoever is fighting for their own freedom. And this is what's amazing about Verdi is because through his music, he became a universal composer because his, his music is, affects anyone. You don't have to be Italian to feel it goes directly you know, to your soul or to your heart, through, sometimes through just very simple uh, accompaniments and a, just a beautiful melody. But the words and the way it's written bring us to, to emote and to feel emotions that are uh, universal.
I'm quite moved hearing you speak of it, Speranza, because I think what a great thing for today's opera creators to think about. How do you create a moment dramatically and musically on stage that is so connected to the story and the characters, but also has this potential to to rise beyond that and to have this universal impact that we're going to remember generations forward. Like what a gift to be able to create something that does both things. It's beautiful. Yeah, but that's the power, power of great music. And that's why I said the composers like Verdi or Mozart or so many others are without time. That all makes me wonder about your approach to conducting. And one of the things you're so well known for is being a collaborative and holistic conductor. And I'm wondering about how you balance the needs of the onstage artists and the orchestra and the pit together. Well, I think that for an opera to be successful from a musical point of view, you need to be very attentive to what's happening on stage, first of all. So there has to be a collaboration with uh, whoever's directing in order to make the show successful. And then um, I strongly, strongly believe in trying to understand and do what the composer did. So I try to be very um, true to what the composer wrote. In doing this, usually, I mean, people who have worked with me confirm it, that I, I give a general structure and the interpretation of the whole piece within that you have artists singers specifically who have their own voices their own way of singing it's up to me to guide them to bring the characters out at their maximum dramatically speaking and help them also with whatever it is that their voice can or cannot do so I can think of a tempo in my head for something, but then if when I get to the rehearsal, the singer has a lighter voice than what I imagined, I'm going to have to move the tempo. At the same time, at the same time, for me, and this is very important, I always say this, the orchestra is not an accompaniment to the singers. The orchestra is part of the drama, is the reason why a singer sings a phrase in a certain way, and the other way around. Therefore, there is no such thing as me being there just to conduct and breathe with the singers. No, it's it's making the whole drama come alive together. And in order to do that, you just need to rehearse and discuss things and decide uh, tempi and breaths and how to use the text. And that's that's a very important part of the process for me. In preparing for this interview, Speranza, we read just one sparkling review after another about your work on the podium. And we also came across an article where you said, I'm not a wunderkind. 40 years of studying music is what makes me who I am today. Could you tell us more about that? What challenges or formative experiences have you had that that you feel have made you the conductor you are today when you take the podium? Well, I, I think that because I didn't plan to be a, co a conductor when I was studying, I was a pianist first and then a rehearsal pianist and then a coach, and then I became an assistant conductor. So there was, there was a long path of studying music that brought me from when I was four or five years old to when I was 37. And then at that point I was like, okay, I've been, I've been, in the opera world, for example, I was a coach and assistant conductor for over 10 years before I decided to make, to make the switch. And so all these experiences are something that form you. 
something else we're curious about is that we know there's a list of places where you've made historic appearances as the first female conductor and your story is an inspiration to so many artists out there. So we'd love to know who were your inspirations as you were training and as you were making that switch to conducting. Well, I had, first of all, I had great teachers both in Rome at the conservatory and then at Juilliard for, for piano and chamber music. And when I went into the sort of opera coaching career, I also had great teachers at Juilliard. I think of Samuel Sanders was my teacher or Diane Richardson, Brian Zeger, and then Warren Jones at the Music Academy of the West. So many people who inspired me to go on that path. And um, and then when I started conducting, um, I had spent the last few years before making the switch as a rehearsal pianist, assistant conductor to Maestro Riccardo Muti, who's one of the greatest conductors alive. And um, it was working with him that really I started thinking maybe at some point I need to take charge and not just be learning from him and seeing what he's doing and assisting him, but really going into my own experiences. So I, I don't have role models. I don't, I did, didn't have role model, role models for the podium. I, I just sort of decided to dive in and I perfected what I needed to perfect before doing that. I extended more studying. I went into, you know, studying more about conducting and about, orchestration and all the things that I needed to do. And then I just sort of dove in. Yes. To take it back to Shakespeare for a moment, as we were preparing for this, we were just thinking about all the different um, artists and creators who have tried to put their own mark on Shakespeare's work. My favorite adaptation is a contemporization and a novelization of the winter's tale of a winter's tale by Jeanette Winterson. And I was wondering if you had a favorite adaptation. I remember a very beautiful movie uh, of Much Ado Ado About Nothing with Kenneth Branagh. Uh, And also there was a Romeo and Juliet with Leonardo DiCaprio, which I thought was great. Oh, the Baz Luhrmann. Yeah, that was was cool. Um, And then, of course, when it comes to music and opera... Besides Verdi, for example, uh, an opera that I love very much and that has brought me also a lot of, a lot of luck uh, is I Capulli dei Montecchi by Bellini, which is based on Romeo and Juliet. which was the opera I was called in to jump in for at La Scala when I just did my debut. So <laughs> there, are, there, are, there are more than one, let's just say. The, uh, the endurance of his art has been incredible. And uh, if we think of, of um, West Side Story by, by Bernstein, I mean, basically it's, it's a re, uh, rethinking of Shakespeare, although it's a completely different story, but it's, definitely inspired by Romeo and Juliet. 
Yeah. And we know there were members of our team as we prepare for this production of Macbeth who were thinking about the recent film with Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. And uh, it just seems like every era can reimagine Shakespeare's stories and put their different spin on it. And whether that's something where it's a West Side story where it's it's loosely inspired by or whether it's actually the text of Shakespeare that's being set to music or created in a film that there's just so much there for future generations to continue to play with. Now, this is a little bit of a cheeky question. You started piano at five and you were later accepted into Juilliard, which is the most prestigious school in North America. And then you gradually moved to conducting. And as you've done that, you've conducted at houses all over the world. So you're ridiculously accomplished. And I just can't help but wonder, like, is there anything you're not good at? And Oh, there are plenty of things I'm not good at. And what would you like to be good at? What are you working towards? Well, um, one thing that I, I was really awful at, but mostly because I just never really did it. And then I got a little better during the first lockdown two years ago. Believe it or not, was cooking, although I'm Italian, because I don't cook. I mean, I used to not cook. And then during the first the first lockdown in March, April, May of 2020, among my projects that I, you know, set for myself, one of them was to learn how to cook. And now, now I'm okay. It's just that I started working again very much. And then I just don't do it as much as I should. But I'm not a good cook. That's <laughs> Were you cooking Italian food or were there other styles? Mostly Italian, mostly Italian. Italian. And that takes often can take a lot of time. Well, I have to say that when I did start and I was following this thing online, I did some really good things and I did them pretty well, but I wouldn't remember how to do them at all. Like I would have to always just follow the, the recipe. So it's obviously not, not a talent of mine. Do you have a favorite thing to make? One thing that I kind of loved trying was different sauces for different pasta or I tried pizza, for example. But if you would ask me, can you make me pizza like that? I, I just can't do it. Like I have to follow a recipe. It's just not in my, not. <laughs> Is there anything else that you'd like to learn or develop? One thing I regret that I think I could have been good at, but I never did because when you play the piano, you're always scared that your hands are going to get injured or whatever is more sports. Like I, now I do, I do my yoga, I do my things and I like biking, for example, but um, I would have loved to learn how to ski. For example, I've never skied in my life um, because I was always scared for my hands. And that's one of the reasons why I never really cooked, cooked because I always afraid of cutting things and burning chopping my hands, chopping yeah, um, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. For example, once I went bowling with friends in New York and I regretted it for a week. I had like tendonitis here oh, just yeah. from throwing the things. I remember seeing, hearing Barbara Seville at the COC back in early 2020, so shortly before the pandemic shut everything down. And now we're looking forward to your return to the Canadian Opera Company. And when you think about returning to the COC, returning to Toronto, what are you looking forward to in terms of being back in the city and the Opera House? Well, I have to say, and I'm not just saying it because we're, we're talking, that I absolutely fell in love with Toronto. And although it was during the wintertime and it was freezing, I love the city. I love 
the people there. And I really, really, really loved working for COC. I, I think you guys have one of the best orchestras there are in North America. And I, I just regret, but, but this time it'll change, that I didn't get a chance to work with the full course because, of course, Barbiere only has the men's course, which was awesome. Uh, the, the actual opera house, the, the, the hall is, is beautiful. And um, it, it's re really one of the happiest experiences I've had since, since I started conducting for the, the atmosphere that I found was very family-like and very nice. And just, we were also very lucky because it was a great cast and we all became good friends. And it, it, it was just a great, great experience. And this time I'm coming in the spring, so I'm hoping to enjoy uh, the city. And while I'm there, there will be a, a big birthday for me. I'm hoping to have a, a good time that day because <laughs> it's a it's a landmark number. So. Okay, well, what a, what a way to celebrate to return to Toronto and to conduct Macbeth. I have a question about Macbeth. So it's about ambition, the perils of ambitious women, and here you are, clearly an ambitious woman doing wonderful things in the music scene. Sandra is an, a wonderfully ambitious singer. And I'm just wondering your thoughts about women and ambition and the themes in Macbeth. I would say that Lady Macbeth is, is what would be described as the extreme worst case scenario of what ambition can bring to uh, when it becomes not a sickness, but kind of like a, an obsession, and it, and then you become someone who is willing to do anything to get where they need to, and that's that's the kind of thing that we do not want to be. So, <laughs> I hope me and Sandra were like very far <laughs> away from that kind of be, being ambitious. Um, I think that. The, in Macbeth, what, what Shakespeare does and then Verdi depicts so beautifully in the music is this sort of thirst for power, uh, which brings you to, to be completely blind and then go over any kind of moral um, boundaries. And, and that's not just her, but he goes along with it because he's weak and he's sort of under her in a way. Whereas for women like me or Sandra or whoever is driven by ambition in our career, at least the way I see it, it's not ambition. I wouldn't call it ambition in my, in my case. Um, it's just you have passion and love for what you're doing. And so you always want to do it at the highest level. So my reasoning has always been do things step by step. I was a pianist. Then I decided I wanted to go into opera. So I got into Juilliard also for that. And then the next step and then becoming a, a companist in, the, in that company. And then, that, and then step by step, you get the experience. And then when I decided to conduct, I didn't make my debut in, in the big houses. I, I went and did the smaller houses first. And then one thing led to the other. Yes, it went relatively fast but only because I was already 37 and I had already all, had all the other experiences before. So it's, it's not like the shooting star to just sort of 
happened. Uh, mine was, has been and is still a path of going the right steps. And I think in a way I like that because I feel like that's, that's the way it's supposed to be in general, but also that the way I feel comfortable doing things. I, if I had been thrown into a situation that's bigger than me when it was too soon, I could have burned, burned the possibilities, you know, so I don't call it ambition. I think it's just wanting to strive always to push yourself to do something more, but not for the ambition for, of saying, oh, I was at La Scala, I was at the Met. What, what else can I do? Like during the lockdown, for example, another thing I did, which was on, on my list, was to learn a little bit of Russian because I was supposed to conduct Onegin in Russian. And I was just scared that if I don't know anything about this language, I'm not going to grasp the intensity of this music or what the text means related to, to, to the orchestra. And so, and that was a challenge because I could have just said, okay, I don't care about the, the language. Let me just conduct my part. And, you know, I think, and I think that if you're not pushed by, um, if you don't set, set challenges to yourself or anyways, things that you would like to do. And then if you don't reach them, it's okay too. It's just that that's something that in my particular case pushes me is just to try and see how further I can go so that I can mature into a better musician. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I think that's great advice that we can all take away. So how do you accomplish your goals? How do you do great things one step at a time? Yeah. And, and not, and not try to, to skip the steps because sometimes skipping steps, I mean, it can be great, but it can also backfire. And when, you know, when La Scala called that day and said, do you want to come jump in? It's in eight days is the premiere. Tomorrow you have your first orchestra reading. They had been working on the production for three weeks before without me. And at that point, I could have also said no, because it sounded crazy. But then I thought, it's a composer I know. I've studied my whole life for this. Yes, I would have dreamt to do it, knowing it beforehand, prepared and everything. To be there 12 hours after the phone call in front of the orchestra in La Scala was nerve-wracking, the idea of it. But then, but then I knew that this happened probably at the right moment in my life. And so I have to take that chance. If it had happened six, seven years ago, I probably would have said no, because maybe it would have been too crazy. So it's a, it's a question of, of being able to judge what, when is the right time and the right moment to do things and not rush into things because... Yeah, you need talent, you need a lot of drive, but you need a lot of experience too. Well, thank you for all that, Speranza. I know we're so, audiences are so excited to have you return and to hear um, your work on Macbeth. And then I think young artists can really benefit from everything you've just shared with us about how you went about developing your skills and finding the next right step and being ready for those opportunities when they came your way. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you both. I loved this conversation. I've been drawn to books and reading for as long as I can remember. And when I encountered Shakespeare's plays, um, it was 
made such a huge impression on me. And like Speranza, I have a big old warm place in my heart for that Baz Luhrmann version of Romeo and Juliet. Oh my gosh, me too. It was so big when I was in junior high, high school. I can't quite remember which, but oh, it just brings back so many memories. And I remember when opera came into my life years later, like I didn't experience it growing up in my hometown, it was actually Verdi that got me hooked because I experienced Otello. And it blew my mind because to take the creative bid that Shakespeare had made and then to raise that one higher, that was so absorbing to me. It's funny how I had almost the opposite experience, but ended up in the same place as you. Um, I started listening to opera when I was younger, and much younger. And I had been exposed to so much Shakespeare in junior high and before, that I was almost rebelling against it. And kind of like, we don't need this as an opera too. But then as I got older, I really grew to appreciate it. It was probably in my 20s when I really made peace with that and started enjoying Verdi's operas. And one thing I loved about talking to Speranza was her methodical approach to everything. Her career didn't necessarily go in the direction she planned, but everything was a logical progression. You had take a step and do one thing, which leads to another, which leads to another. And now she's one of the most fascinating conductors going. Totally. Um, having this opportunity to chat with her was like a mini masterclass, and I can't wait to see her return to the podium. And you can see more of Speranza this spring in Toronto. Macbeth runs from April 28th to May 20th at the Four Seasons Centre for the Performing Arts. Full ticket details can be found at coc.ca. On our next episode of Key Change, we dive into one of the greatest opera villains ever written, Police Chief Baron Scarpia in Giacomo Puccini's Tosca. British baritone Roland Wood will be taking on this role when it comes to the COC stage this spring. And when we reached out to him to talk about the character, we assumed he'd tell us all about how hard it is to dig deep and become this ultimate bad guy. As it turns out, Roland's having the time of his life playing the dark and dramatic roles often associated with his baritone voice type. And he had some really interesting insights about operas being staged in modern day. You definitely don't want to miss it. Thanks so much for joining us today. We absolutely could not do this without your support. And we also love hearing your feedback. Connect with us anytime on social at Canadian Opera or email us at audiences at coc.ca. Plus, never miss an episode by signing up for Key Change Alerts any place you get your podcasts. Until next time. Bye. Bye.